Hello, First Baptist Church of Keller family and those of you that are joining us for our weekly systematic theology class. We're coming down the home stretch. We have today and I believe two more classes. Uh, next week we're going to look at the concept of ecclesiology, which is the study of the church. And then our final session in t two weeks will be on eschatology, the study of last things. Uh, but today I want to finish up on soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation. Last week we looked at uh, several concepts, one of which was regeneration. Remember that regeneration uh, means new birth. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that to enter the kingdom of God, one must be born again. And regeneration is God's giving spiritual life to one that is spiritually dead. Of course, the Apostle Paul teaches in his epistles that uh, all of us are dead in trespasses and sins before God does a miracle work of regeneration. We talked about from a human perspective, uh, once our eyes are open, we're granted spiritual life, we are said to be converted through faith and repentance. Faith is belief and trust in God and his promises, specifically the message of the gospel. And repentance, of course, is turning from sin and uh, towards Christ, and we said both of those are gifts of God. He has to grant us faith and repentance. No person of their own volition would ever uh, repent and sin. We are incapable of doing that, of course, because we're dead in our sins. Uh, I want to talk today about uh, three perspectives on salvation, and then we're going to look at a concept known as the ordo salutis. Um, first concept is justification. We touched on that a little bit last week. Justification is a legal or we could say forensic term. Uh, it means God's freeing a person of the penalty of sin. And I, I like to say when I'm preaching about this doctrine that, that he hits the gavel as the righteous judge of the universe and declares us no longer guilty. That is, we have been uh, cleansed from guilt because of our faith and trust in what Christ has done in our place, which he's taken the penalty that we deserved on the cross. And so justification happens at a moment in time. It's instantaneous. But uh, once we are justified in the eyes of God, then for the rest of our lives, we enter into a process known as sanctification. And sanctification is God's separating a Christian from sin and sin's lure for the rest of their life. That is, from the, the moment a person is saved or born again, he or she is in the process of God making that person more and more into the image of Christ by separating them from, from their sins. Now, he accomplishes this through a number of means, uh, through the disciplines of Bible study and listening to sermons and prayer and fasting and generosity, all of these things that, that we do and, and I want to make it clear, and I've said this before, uh, salvation is all of God. In fact, that was the theme we kept hitting on last week, that salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit. And, and that's certainly true of justification. God has to declare us righteous. But sanctification, we do participate in. That is, God doesn't just uh, pour a knowledge of the scriptures into our head through osmosis. We have to participate through the discipline of prayer and Bible study and corporate worship. Um, but of course, he gets the glory ultimately. And, and of course, at the end of our lives, 
we enter to that, that third phase, if we can call it that, of salvation, which is glorification, uh, which is based on our union with Christ. Of course, uh, we are said to be in Christ. Uh, that is, we're joint heirs with Jesus, and we get to share in the glory that he receives from the Father by virtue of, of our connection to him. Um, so uh, th- those are some very important terms, and, and I think every Christian needs to be able to, at a basic level, um, articulate the concept of justification, sanctification, and, and glorification. Remember, we're not memorizing these definitions or, or these difficult words for the sake of winning a debate or impressing our friends with our newfound vocabulary. Uh, remember the Apostle Paul prayed for the church of Ephesus that they would grow in their appreciation of their salvation, that they'd understand the height and depth and breadth of their salvation. Um, you know, I often tell a story. Years ago, I spent a summer in St. Petersburg, Russia, and each week a different church from the United States would come in. I would meet them at the airport. Uh, we would do vacation Bible school and backyard Bible clubs with local orphans there in St. Petersburg. And then the last day, they had a, a fun day, and we would often go to the Hermitage Museum there in St. Petersburg, Russia. And it, it, it's, it's a museum that's one of the greatest in the world, and it houses some of the rarest and, and most treasured works of art from the masters, Rembrandt, on down. And um, having made that tour probably a dozen times over that summer, I, I grew in my appreciation of great art. I'm not a very creative person, but by listening to those who truly understand what separates great art from doodling, uh, giving those tours, I came to understand the greatness of the masters in a way that I hadn't um, before that summer began. And that really is what Paul is praying, of course, in a much more important way, is that those who have entered into a relationship with Christ over the course of our lifetime would grow in our appreciation and understanding of the enormity and the rarity and the value of our salvation. And so that's why we study. And so we need to be able to describe it the best that we can, and we need to be able to communicate it with other people who may have questions about what we believe. And so speaking of that, um, I want to introduce you now to a concept called ordo salutis. It may be a new word to many of you, as you may guess it's a Latin term, and it simply means the order of salvation. That is, it's a way of talking about our salvation that that organizes um, the realities through the process of, of salvation. Uh, that really, of course, goes back to our definition of systematic theology. We said we systematic theology is, is really the organization of what the Bible has to teach and say about God. And we said that God is orderly, and we see that um, in salvation. Now, I will tell you that there are differences of opinion about where each of these events should be placed in the order of salvation, but I'm going to give you the one that, that I typically teach, and I think it's a, a pretty good understanding of the process of salvation. And so it begins with the concept of election. Now, the Greek word electos that we find in a number of places in the New Testament simply means to choose. And so uh, the great debate among evangelicals is who chose 
who? Uh, well, the Bible clearly teaches that God is the one who do, does the choosing and salvation. Jesus told his disciples that uh, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And, and so with all of these concepts, when we define them, I try to use God as the noun. In other words, God is doing something in each of these uh, areas of salvation. So in election, God chooses those who will be saved. And so he gets the glory. We, we didn't choose God because we were somehow intellectually superior to those who have rejected God, but God in his sovereignty uh, chose to open our blind eyes. And so let me give you a couple of uh, passages of Scripture. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. By the way, Tyler is in class today, and so I'll be reading the Scripture. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit, and faith in the truth. And of course, the classic text on election is Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4, where Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we may be holy and blameless before him in love. And so our salvation did not begin when we heard a message now, from our perspective, it did, but from God's perspective, he chose you before the foundation of the earth, before you were born. And of course, that brings us great assurance. The Bible says that he that began a good work in you will complete it. So before you drew a breath, God determined to save you. He pursued you. Then he regenerated you. And now he is preserving you and one day will bring you to glorification. And that brings great assurance. The scripture says, what can separate us from the love of God? Of course, the answer to that is nothing. So our salvation from God's perspective begins with the concept of election. And then from our perspective, it begins with the gospel call. Uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 14 and 15. How then will they call on him who they've not believed? How will they believe in him who they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent, just as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Of course, he's speaking there of what we would call evangelism. And so evangelism is the communication of the gospel by which one can be saved. God in his sovereignty has ordained evangelism as the means through which people are born again. That is, uh, unless you hear a message about Christ and the Holy Spirit takes that message and causes you to believe it and opens your blind eyes, you cannot be saved. And so the gospel call um, is essential. Now, there's a difference between what theologians call the gospel call, which is universal in scope, and the effectual call. Now, we know experientially, and the Bible, of course, teaches this too, that not everyone who hears about Jesus, not everyone who hears the gospel call will receive it. In fact, Jesus indicated that those who receive it will be in the minority. He said that uh, narrow is the gate and, and narrow the way that leads to eternal life, and few there be that find it. That is, 
In every epoch of history, I take it, those who are being saved are fewer in number than those who are rejecting the gospel. And yet some are being saved, and they are saved through what we call the effectual call. Now, do you remember when Jesus got the word that his friend Lazarus had died? And by the time he got to Bethany, where Lazarus was buried, he had been in the grave a few days, and his sisters were distraught. And one of them said, Master, if you'd only been here. And, of course, Jesus wept at that point. The shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept. And yet not all was lost because Jesus, as God, is omnipotent, which means he has power even over our greatest enemy, death. And he approached the the mouth of that tomb and he said, Lazarus, come forth. He gave him a call to come out of the grave. And uh, if you know your New Testament... He came forth, didn't he? And he lived. Uh, Well, that really is what happens spiritually when we hear a message about the gospel, the Holy Spirit opens our blind eyes, and we are called from death unto life through the effectual call. And of course, uh, a synonym of the effectual call we looked at last week is regeneration. And just a reminder, regeneration is, is God's giving spiritual life where there was only spiritual death. Uh, Again, from a human perspective, what takes place is what we call conversion. And uh, 1 Peter 1.23, speaking of conversion, says, For you have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable but imperishable, that is, through the living, enduring word of God. That is, we have become fundamentally different as a result of regeneration. And then I mentioned that concept earlier of justification, which is the, the next step of salvation. Um, Justification is the theme of the entire book of Romans. And Lord willing, after we finish verse by verse through the gospel of Luke next Easter, uh, the following fall, which will be 2021, uh, we're going to start in a verse by verse study of the book of Romans. And so Romans chapter 5, verse 1 through 10 says this about justification. Therefore, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations brings about perseverance, perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now, again, this is a forensic and a legal term. Uh, Remember, Dr. Summerhill taught us several weeks ago that through the scriptures, God transports us into certain rooms to understand our salvation. And now he's transported us in Romans 5 to the courtroom. And so God's the righteous judge. He knows everything about us, every thought we've ever thought, every sin we've ever done. And he declares us 
not guilty, not because we're, we are not guilty. We know we're guilty. Romans 3 tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But because Christ, who is the only perfect one, has chosen to give us his righteousness. And that really is what happens in salvation. There's this great transfer. Christ, who is the sinless one, takes our sin guilt on himself at the cross and takes the punishment that we richly deserve. And then he gives to all who will put faith and trust in him his righteousness. So God, who is just, he can't just overlook sin and pretend it doesn't happen, can maintain his justice and his mercy by allowing Jesus to take our punishment that we deserve. So that's justification. It's a legal term. And then we we touched briefly a few weeks ago on the concept of adoption as it relates to our salvation. Romans 8 uh, verse 15 speaks of uh, adoption. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So it's not just that uh, we enter into neutrality in our relationship with God. Because remember, the scripture says we're born in a state of enmity. We are enemies of God because we are sinners by nature. So when we put faith and trust in what Christ has done, it's not just that we go back to neutral. It's that we are accepted now into his forever family. He calls us sons and daughters. He calls us friends, Jesus says. And so that's adoption. And then another term that we mentioned earlier is sanctification, that for for the rest of our life after we're born again, we grow more and more uh, into the image of Christ. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Now may the God of peace sanctify you entirely. May your spirit, soul, and body be preserved completely without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, we, we constantly are making progress in sanctification. By the way, that leads to assurance as well. Uh, if you want to have assurance of salvation, uh, when you look back over the course of your life, if, if you are putting to death sinful habits in your life, if you are uh, more like Christ than you were when you started down this road, this, of course, leads to a greater assurance of salvation. And then there was a term that was mentioned in one of the passages that we read earlier in, in, in Romans chapter 5, the concept of perseverance. Uh, to persevere uh, in the faith. The Bible says that those that persevere to the end will be saved, that is brought to glorification. It's not that we can lose our salvation. It's that those who are truly born again prove that through their perseverance. We read an article just today about a Christian celebrity who on the internet this week publicly renounced their faith in God and is now a self-proclaimed atheist. And we hear more and more about that. Well, the Bible says um, they go out from us because they never were of us. That is, it's not that a person was saved and lost their salvation. Uh, The fact that they uh, ultimately renounced their faith shows that uh, they never truly were born again. Because someone that's truly born again will, by necessity and by definition, persevere until the end. And the end, of course, for Christians is glorification. And let me read you two or three passages about that concept. 1 Corinthians 15, 12. Now, if Christ has preached that he's not been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there's no resurrection for the dead? Remember, 
1 Corinthians 15, Paul is, is defending the concept of a literal bodily resurrection of Jesus and the necessity of that because we are raised with Christ and we look forward to that resurrection by virtue of our union with him. Romans 8.30, and these who were predestined, he also called, and those he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now you'll notice he uses the past tense to talk about something that's yet in the future. And that is, in the mind of the Apostle Paul, when God promises to do something, it's as good as already done. And so he sometimes would use the past tense to describe our future glorification. And then another passage that's dear to our hearts is 2 Timothy 4.8. The Apostle Paul's come to the end of his life. He's encouraging his young protege, Timothy, to persevere in the faith. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which is the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So glorification is not just the hope of super Christians, uh, whatever that may be. Uh, it is the consummation of the salvation of every born-again person. So just in review, order salutis, the order of salvation, election, calling, regeneration, conversion, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. I think that's a good place to stop. There is much, much more that can be said about soteriology and the doctrine of salvation. Um, but uh, for the time being, I think we'll stop there, pick up in ecclesiology next week, and now we want to welcome our guest. Our guest today is Dr. Jim Richards. Dr. Richards is the executive director of the Southern Baptist of Texas Convention. He's also a member of First Baptist Church of Keller along with his wife, June, their son, Nate, and his family. Dr. Richards, welcome to our program today. Thank you, Pastor. It's a delight to be with you. First of all, I want to ask you what I ask all of our guests. How's your family doing during the COVID-19 lockdown? Well, thank you for asking. And of course, as you mentioned, uh, Nathan and Whitney have their uh, year-old son, uh, Graham, and they're right around the corner from us, and we're able to interact with them, and we're grateful for that. Our oldest daughter is in Jackson, Mississippi, with her husband, who is a pediatric oncologist and chief of his division there at the hospital, and so he has uh, been on the front lines of this, but uh, fortunately has not um, had any issues with the COVID-19, and they have our, our first grandson, uh, Harrison, and then our uh, middle child, youngest daughter, is married to a church planter. They've been in Westfield, Indiana for the last six-plus years, and they have our two granddaughters, and uh, they're pretty well under lockdown there. They have not had uh, quite uh, the releasing that we've had here in Texas, but uh, grateful that they're doing well and everybody's healthy. So thank you for asking. Well, we're so glad to hear that. I mentioned that you're the executive director of the SBTC. I know not everyone in our congregation is familiar with our denominational working. So tell us what the SBTC is and what you all do there. Well, thank you again for the opportunity to share about the ministry. Um, uh, not to go into uh, too much detail, but the Southern Baptist Convention itself, which is the national entity, 
went through a uh, reclamation of biblical fidelity uh, through the 1980s and early 1990s. Each state convention is separate and can choose to do what they would like to do, uh, whether they want to be in cooperation with the national entity, the Southern Baptist Convention. Here in Texas, it became apparent that a new convention would need to be formed in order for churches to have the type of relationship they desired with the national entity on the specific um, matter of doctrinal fidelity and biblical authority and sufficiency. And so in 1998, the Southern Baptist of Texas Convention was formed with 120 churches. But over these last 22 years, we've seen the convention grow to now 2,744 affiliated congregations. And by virtue of that, our uh, ability to minister to those churches comes with the employment of a staff. We have a small numbered staff, and yet we seek to provide over 100 different areas of ministry to the local churches to help those local churches carry out the Great Commission, because the Great Commission is given to the local church, and the convention staff and entity here seeks to uh, help those churches do that. And then, of course, we, uh, as, as a group of churches, we uh, uh, seek to plant new churches and to revitalize churches that are uh, struggling and perhaps about to close. So those are some of the major functions that we have. We are a biblically-based uh, group of churches. We are a confessional fellowship, which means that the churches affirm that they will work in agreement with our faith statement, which is the current adopted Baptist faith and message statement of 2000. And secondly, we're kingdom focused in that we do want to help churches carry out the Great Commission through all of these means. And then finally, we're missionally driven through a common funding plan called the Cooperative Program. Southern Baptist came up with that in 1925. And our state convention gives away a higher percentage of cooperative program gifts from the churches that come through the Southern Baptist of Texas Convention than any other state convention. So we are 55% going on to the international mission effort of Southern Baptist with over 3,700 missionaries on the field and, of course, uh, church planters and other personnel such as chaplains with the North American Mission Board here in North America as well as helping to subsidize over 15,000 seminary students in our six Southern Baptist seminaries. So the Southern Baptist of Texas Convention is a good partner with the Southern Baptist Convention financially and missiologically, but also here in Texas seeking to invest that 45% to cause uh, the, the gospel to go forth in this uh, state of great need, 29 million people, and the vast majority, some estimate between 18 and 19 million who do not know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. So that's what uh, that's who we are. We're a group of churches that uh, coalesce around a doctrinal confession, and it's what we do, and that is to help as a staff and as a group of churches working together to carry out the Great Commission. And then how we do it is through that uh, giving plan that we have where it is an undesignated gift from the churches through this plan to help us in Texas and nationally and internationally. 
You mentioned your commitment as an organization to biblical fidelity, and I think that's what uh, drew our church to affiliate with the SBTC some years back. We certainly have a commitment to biblical fidelity as well. Uh, This week, we're looking forward uh, to the coming uh, study of ecclesiology, which, as you know, is the theology of the church. And speaking of biblical fidelity, where in the Bible, specifically, can we find uh, examples of local autonomous churches partnering together and cooperating? Scriptures are, are very clear in a number of ways. First of all, in principle uh, that are applicable to the local church. While it, uh, say, for example, in the Old Testament, we have um, the example of working together, Aaron and her holding up the hands of Moses, the tribes working together, and Ezra and Nehemiah, Uh, the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem, all of those are examples of cooperation and working together. In in, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 4, it's to me one of the quintessential passages about friendship and how important friendship is, but it is definitely applicable to local churches and congregations of how we strengthen one another, encourage one another, and enable one another to carry out the Great Commission and obey our Lord's command. But when we turn to the New Testament, there are abundant examples of churches working together to carry out the Great Commission. 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 are probably the primary passages that would show how churches interact with one another. The churches of Macedonia, the churches that Paul had already established were enabling him to establish other churches, and they were contributing, they were praying, and they were sending workers. Also, we know that the great missionary movement came out of the Antioch church, but not without the support doctrinally and otherwise from the Jerusalem church. So Acts chapters 13 and 15 give us prime examples of how the early churches, the very earliest of churches, were able to work together to accomplish the Great Commission. And then there are many other passages of Scripture in Paul's writings, uh, such as in uh, Philippians chapter 4, where uh, the Philippian church uh, had contributed to Paul's missionary endeavors to establish other churches. So churches have been working together, doing the work of Christ ever since the establishment of the church in the first century. So you mentioned earlier that uh, we participate in the cooperative program. I know we have a lot of our members that have joined us from other denominations and faith traditions in recent years, maybe not as familiar uh, with the cooperative program as those who grew up in a Baptist church. Can you give us a little history of the CP when it started, what its primary purposes are. You gave a little history of where the money goes, but can you give us a little more detail on that? Sure. The um, Southern Baptist Convention was founded in 1845, and Baptist endeavors have always been somewhat cooperative, but mainly uh, through independent contributions. So when missionaries were sent back in the 17 and 1800s, they were sent by raising their own money. So they had to go from church to church. Then there were missionary societies that were created so that churches, local churches, could give through the missionary societies to individual missionaries. And then schools had to raise their own money, and they would send out uh, agents 
to try to raise the money to help their schools. Children's homes would do the same and on and on. So every endeavor that was being done on a what we would call a denominational level was being done by individual entities seeking to raise their own money from the individual church. But by the 1920s, a concept of a unified budget to support these ministries came into play. As our first confessional statement as Southern Baptist was adopted in 1925, so was the cooperative program. The cooperative program was devised to be an assistance to the churches so that they would not have all of these entities and independent agents coming and asking them for funding, but rather that they might give an undesignated amount that would be then decided by the state convention and the National Southern Baptist Convention how that money was to be dispensed. And it became a very efficient way of taking care of our missionaries. So today, we have the cooperative program funding to enable those 3,700 missionaries to be on the field. And just as this COVID-19 crisis arose, we were able to have a safety net under those missionaries to get them out of hot spots and bring them back to the states if necessary to relocate them or help them as they sheltered in place. And their funding continued, and they did not have to be concerned about the financial drop in a local church or a handful of local churches that might have been supporting them. And the same is true for our Southern Baptist entities as well as uh, our ministries here in Texas. We have church planters here in Texas that are funded through the cooperative program. We have church revitalizers who are funded through the cooperative program. And had we uh, not had this system in place, then these people would be dependent on one, two, or a handful of churches. And if those churches had a decline in their financial giving, then their ministries would have been greatly hampered. So it's a beautiful system that enables us to accomplish much together that we would not be able to do on an individual basis. Well, I appreciate that answer because I talk uh, to so many, uh, especially, again, those who didn't grow up as Southern Baptist. Uh, Every other organization they've been a part of is truly hierarchical in nature. We like to say that in the Southern Baptist Convention, the organizational chart is an inverted pyramid. What do we mean by that? And explain, please, how autonomy works at the local, state, and national level. I really love that question because that's a sweet uh, spot in my heart. Uh, Article 16 of our Baptist Faith and Message speaks about the church. The church is a uh, primarily, as it's referred to in Scripture, a local congregation, and we uh, respect and admire and participate as a group of Baptists with the autonomy of the local church. So while we cooperate together, it is a voluntary cooperation because each local church is the complete body of Christ to be carrying out the Great Commission itself, and the local church is at the top of the pyramid. So the local church is an independent, autonomous, missionary congregation of Christ followers, and yet they voluntarily cooperate with others in local settings or state conventions or the Southern Baptist Convention to accomplish much more. So with that, uh, the local church still has the authority over these other entities. So the state convention 
even though it's autonomous, it is relying totally upon the congregations that make it up. And the local churches send messengers to an annual meeting of the convention so that the local churches can make the decision for the convention. So there is no group of people, an oligarchy, if you will, that makes the decisions for a state convention or the Southern Baptist Convention, but it is the messengers or the representatives of the churches when they gather in the annual session. Well, Dr. Richards, thank you for your time. I want to uh, give my endorsement of the cooperative program to our people. Uh, our church presently allocates 5% of our undesignated offerings to the SBTC through the cooperative program. We're glad to participate with the other 2,500 or so churches in the state, and we're looking forward to an even stronger relationship in the future. Well, thank you very much, Pastor. It's uh my joy to have you as my pastor, and we pray for you and your family. My wife and I love you dearly, and thank God for the ministry of First Baptist Keller and the tremendous testimony that it has in the city and the area and across the state and around the world because of the church's participation. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. We, we like to close our class every week in order of prayer, and I always ask our guest if there's any particular way that we can be praying for you. Well, we definitely need wisdom as we seek to lead through uh, these uh, challenging times and to ask that uh, God would be gracious to show his favor toward us. Well, let's close our class in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our time today. Thank you for the things that we've learned from your word. We pray that you would continue to organize our understanding of you so that we can communicate it and articulate it clearly to others. We thank you for Dr. Richards joining us today. Thank you for what he and the SBTC stands for. Thank you for the partnership that we have with them and many, many other churches around North America. Father, we would pray that you'd uh, guard over his health and that of his family. We pray you'd continue to use that wonderful organization for your honor and glory. Pray you dismiss us now with your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.